We're going to read uh, from Leviticus chapter 16, verse 11 to 28, and uh, it's printed in your bulletin. Uh, the font's a little bit smaller to fit it in, uh, but it is the word of the Lord, so let's, uh, let's hear it uh, as such. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his fingers seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of a bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar and he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire, and he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. This is the word of the Lord. You know, leading up to Good Friday and Easter, we're trying to look at a little series, uh, unpacking the meaning of the cross. And uh, we're going to do it by looking at uh, what I guess I'm calling or what the author of Hebrews calls the the shadow uh, of the cross. Uh, Shadows are things that are basically hinting or anticipating the reality of something. So when we look at the Old Testament, We see a lot of shadows. We see a lot of things that will anticipate the cross. And uh, we're looking at Old Testament passages uh, in order to get uh, maybe a better grasp of the cross or to even uh, see a different dimension of the cross. Last week, we looked at the Passover uh, celebration. Uh, 
And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a very important holiday, at least for Jewish people, which is the Day of Atonement. Now, I don't know where you grew up, but in the town I grew up, there was a lot of Jewish people. Uh, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. It was one of the days that uh, school was closed. And for the Jewish community, it's a very important holiday that they, they celebrate with uh, fasting and uh, repentance and so forth. Uh, you, you probably know this already. You probably know it based on um, when you heard the passage being read. Leviticus is, uh, is a difficult book to read. You know, my wife, uh, she's, she's trying to read through the entire Bible uh, this year, and she recently actually finished reading the book of Leviticus. And that's, that's a big accomplishment because I think the book of Leviticus, is, especially if you're reading the Bible in order, uh, it's a book that you tend to give up on, uh, and you say, oh, I, I can't get through this. It's just too hard to read. And, you know, Leviticus, it is a, is it a, it is a tough book to read because it's filled with all these kind of laws and instructions that seem to be uh, disconnected from our culture and our lives. But, you know, even though it's a hard book to read, it's an essential book in the Bible. And uh, it's an, it was an essential book for the people of Israel, but I think it's also an essential book for, for the Christian. And hopefully, as I unpack this, uh, that'll become clearer. Uh, the first five books of the Bible is called the Pentateuch. And you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And uh, we're probably used to reading each book uh, as an individual book. Uh, but there are some scholars who say, you know, you, you kind of have to look at the entire uh, Pentateuch, the first five of the Bi- uh, books of the Bible, kind of as a, as a narrative whole. And if that's the case, then this chapter actually in Leviticus functions as the structural and thematic center of the Pentateuch. Right? One scholar says it's the literary summit to which and from which the narrative drama ascends and descends. So it may not sound like it, but this is the climax of the Pentateuch. Now, one of the reasons why uh, these laws and instructions were so important is because uh, it brought the people of Israel into a certain kind of experience with God, into a certain kind of experience with worship. And uh, these instructions are taught, or it taught them something important about the character of God and about the will of God. And if you think about it this way, right now when we come together and gather and worship on Sundays, we are experiencing worship together. We are experiencing the liturgy. We are experiencing the elements of worship together. And I think that's part of what these instructions are designed to do for a people at least. And just think about if somebody wrote instructions on how to do worship. So it's kind of like first, you know, have the musician play a song and a prelude. Then second, presider should come up and uh, start the worship and call people to worship through the reading of a psalm. Next, the musicians should play a couple more songs, and that should be followed by prayer. And imagine just kind of listing all the instructions to what we are doing here. It's not going to be the most fascinating read, right? But yet, it is still going to be important in terms of understanding how worship ought to be done. So I think that's the, the framework we ought to uh, look at the book of Leviticus. And uh, it's something that the Jewish people in their time experience, and it's something that they experience in terms of understanding who God is. Now, Christians these days, we, we don't practice that many ceremonial things that are instructed in the book of Leviticus, which um, I think probably contributes to the sense of uh, this is an irrelevant book for us. But, you know, Leviticus is so incredibly relevant for Christians Uh, but I think for reasons that are a little bit different than the original recipients, than the people of Israel. Because you see, these instructions and laws, as I said before, they they reflect who God is. 
They reflect his character. They reflect his will. They show us that God is someone who is holy. Uh, they show us that God is someone who is so holy that he can't tolerate sin and imperfection. But they also show us how God uh, deals with sin and the sin of his people in view of the fact that he is holy. And therefore, that's why it's an important message for us. Believe it or not, this very passage is uh, a very rich passage. And uh, because it's so rich, I actually can't preach it in one sermon. So we're going to break this up into two messages. And yes, this entire passage uh, in two weeks we'll read again in, in its entirety. Uh, but to make things a little bit easier to understand in terms of what's going on here, I, I do want to organize it a little bit. And uh, the way we can organize it is we can say there are three ceremonial acts that are taking place here. Or we could say there are three religious rites, R-I-T-E-S. There is an entrance rite, there is a cleansing rite, and there is an expulsion rite where this goat is right, being sent out. Today we're just going to look at these first two rites, and then um, next time we look at this passage, we'll look at the last one. But we'll look at the entrance rite and the cleansing rite and see what it tells us about who God is. Now first, the entrance rite. Uh, so you have a high priest here, his name is Aaron. And uh, Aaron, because he's the high priest, he is doing the primary work in the temple, and that's the job of a priest. And when he enters the, te the temple, God gives him very specific instructions in terms of what he is supposed to do. So we read the passage. He, he's supposed to offer a bull, the uh, sacrifice of a bull for himself and for his household. Then he takes a censer full of coals, a fire, and he puts incense on the fire so that there's like this cloud that is forming uh, that would cover the mercy seat. And the reason for the cloud, theologically speaking, is so that his eyes would be somewhat shielded from the glory of God so that God's glory doesn't consume him. And then he is supposed to take some blood and uh, sprinkle it on this mercy seat. And we just read this, and the details are very uh, detailed and precise. Now, what this entrance right communicates to us is something that's very simple, but something that's essential for all of us to know, and it's this, that nobody can come to God on their own terms. We don't come to God, we don't approach God on our own terms, but rather we can only approach God on his terms. And you know, I think Aaron would have understood this better than anybody else because you know, he actually lost two of his sons in Leviticus 10, uh, Nadab and Abihu, both of whom were Aaron's sons. Uh, they didn't follow God's instructions. They went into the uh, holy place and they were consumed by the fire in the temple. So I think at this point, Aaron himself probably understands, you know, I understand the stakes. I understand that I need to follow God's instructions precisely if I am going to come uh, into his very presence. I think the average New Yorker looks at this and reads this and says, isn't it a bit of an overreaction, right? Isn't God overreacting a little bit? Isn't he being too much of a stickler in terms of his instructions? But I think this is the reason why we need a book like Leviticus in our Bibles because it makes the point that God is someone who is perfect. God is someone who is holy. And therefore, because he is perfect and because he is holy, he cannot tolerate any imperfection and he cannot tolerate any sin because that in itself would compromise his very character. If you're a fan of baseball, in baseball there's something called a perfect game. Uh, a perfect game is when a pitcher pitches for nine innings and nobody ever gets on base. 
That means there are no hits. That means there are no walks. And therefore, it is a very difficult task to achieve, and it's very rare when it actually does happen. You know, if only one batter were to reach uh, first base, you can't call it a perfect game anymore. You could call it maybe a no-hitter. You could call it a shutout. But it ceases to be a perfect game. You see, the very definition of perfection means you don't allow imperfection, right? If you want to worship and devote your life to a being, to God, wouldn't you want to worship a being who is absolutely perfect? Wouldn't you want to worship a being who is perfect in righteousness, perfect in justice, perfect in love, perfect in wisdom? You see, Leviticus is saying that God is perfect and he is holy, which means he is set apart from anything in all of creation, and therefore he cannot tolerate imperfection when it comes to entering into his presence, into the very inner recesses of his holy presence. And in the Old Testament, that place is called the Holy of Holies. So since God is holy and perfect, we can't approach him on our own terms, and perhaps more than anything, that's probably going to be one of the most hardest things uh, for us to, uh, actually people in our culture to understand, to accept, to appropriate. Western culture, uh, people tend to be very individualistic. That means we like to do things on our own terms, and that's problematic for many other reasons, but it's problematic for spiritual reasons as well. Because if the Bible says what we need most in order to be made whole is we need to know God and we need to be in his presence, then it's going to be a problem when we say, I only want to come to God on my own terms. That's how I think a lot of people approach God. You know, when people say, which I hear all the time, uh, I'm spiritual but not religious, uh, if you break that down, the underlying philosophy behind that actually says this, I want to do spirituality on my own terms. Or we might say things like this, um, I'll get to God, I'll make time for God when work isn't so busy, uh, when family isn't so busy. I'll go to church when I like the community, if I like the, the pastor, or if I like the sermons, or when it's convenient to my schedule. But, you know, that kind of approach to spirituality, uh, it doesn't have the power to change you because, precisely because it's on your own terms. You know, uh, if, if you know anybody who's been addicted to a substance, addicts usually overestimate their ability and their power to change, Right? So initially, uh, they'll, they'll receive help if that help is on their own terms. They'll say things like, all right, I'll go to rehab as long as I think I need rehab. Or I'll go to rehab as long as I can check out whenever I want to check out. And I think it's, it's not until they realize that they can't get better on their own power and on their own terms where uh, real change starts to take place. And usually that happens when they hit rock bottom. You know, we, we are kind of like addicts in that way uh, because we believe that when we believe the power to change uh, resides within ourselves. But, you know, if that were really true, why would we need God at all, right? Why would we need God at all? We can just save ourselves. We can just change ourselves. In fact, God would probably be somebody who hinders you and would be somebody who's not attractive to you because he doesn't allow you to do what you want by not allowing you to set the terms you see, if it is true that the power to change doesn't reside within ourselves and that we truly do need God, then guess what? We also need for him to set the terms for us. When we look at this entrance right, it makes a basic point that 
nobody can set the terms when it comes to approaching and coming into the presence of a holy and perfect God. So the next question is, if God is so holy and if God is so perfect, how does he allow one to come into his presence without compromising his character? And this leads to the second rite that we're going to look at, the cleansing rite. You know, God, he establishes a, a system of sacrifice Now, I know uh, a system of sacrifice, the shedding of blood of animals, uh, is a very unusual practice for people in the modern context. It sounds weird. It sounds primitive. But one author actually says this, that the sacrificial system shows something about the kindness of God. She says, The sacrificial system has a gentleness about it that is hard for us to see from our distance, but perhaps we can grasp the general idea of God's patience and kindness in giving his perpetually wayward people the means to stand before him. And you see, as strange as it might be for an animal sacrifice to be conducted in in some kind of religious ceremony, its very existence is actually a reflection of the fact that God is kind and that God is patient with us and that God is loving towards us because what he is doing is he is enabling his people to take a step towards him. So why blood? Blood. There's a couple reasons, but let me just give two. You know, in Hebrews 9.22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no forgiveness of sins. Now, why does blood have to be shed in order for God to forgive us? According to Leviticus, life is in the blood. Medically speaking, blood is essential if uh, you're going to live and be alive. If you lose too much blood, you die. So how does that connect with the idea of forgiveness for sins? Well, you know, when the Bible talks about uh, forgiveness, it it talks about it in economic terms. And actually, Fred alluded to that um, when he was talking about how we're so worried about pennies compared to the great debt that has been forgiven. Anytime there is some kind of offense, it creates a debt and it has to be paid. And it's paid by one of two people. Either the offender pays it or either the person who was offended pays it. But someone always has to pay. And that is a basic understanding of justice. You see, when you come into the presence of God with your sin, your life should actually be taken away. That's what happened to Aaron's sons. Sacrifice says, because of my sin, my life ought to be taken away. There is a debt that has to be paid. This blood that I sacrifice essentially means this, that I am going to give you the life blood of another through this animal in my place and pay the debt of my sin with this life, with this blood. And that's justice and that's forgiveness. Now, I know we don't practice forgiveness like that, but Uh, the idea and the concept is still there. You know, if if one of your friends does something that hurts you or offends you, it does create a debt. Uh, You can make your friend pay that debt by trying to punish them uh, for that offense. You give them the silent treatment. You can be passive-aggressive. You can cease to be their friend. You can maybe spread gossip about them. Or you can forgive them, which essentially means this. I will absorb the hurt, I will absorb the pain that you cause me, and I will forgive you. And in absorbing the pain and absorbing the hurt, essentially what you're saying is, I forgive you. I'm paying that debt. And forgiveness on every level works like that at its core. 
At the root of our sin is an offense against God, and therefore there is a debt that is created, and it must be paid. And how did God instruct Israel to pay that debt? Through this system of blood sacrifice. And God essentially says, your sin has created a debt that must be paid with your life, but instead of paying it with your life, you can offer the life of another symbolized by the blood of an animal which will pay that debt on your behalf. That's why Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But there's also another function of blood here, and the second function is blood makes clean. Blood makes clean. Uh, Leviticus is strange, uh, partially because there are so many laws that have to do with cleanliness. What is clean? What is unclean? And we see it in this passage as well. You know, starting in verse 15, we're told that the high priest should kill a goat and sprinkle blood over the mercy seat. And then the next verse tells us what that accomplishes. Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. Uh, Sin is described in so many different ways in the Bible. Sin is the breaking of God's law. Sin is slavery. But sin is also described as something that makes one unclean, which I think is something that especially people in our culture can uh, generally understand, even if you're unfamiliar with the definition or the concept of sin. I think people understand that being unclean is something that is relationally repugnant. Uh, You know, I know someone who said uh, before he uh, went to college as a freshman, the particular college that he went to, they had this program for freshman guys. And you sign up for this program. You go into the wilderness, I think, for like seven days, and it's like hardcore camping, and it's supposed to be a bonding experience with the guys that you go with. So they get dropped off in the wilderness. Uh, You know, all they have is their backpack. There's no shower. There's no, like, toilets. There's no any of that stuff, modern amenities. And you're basically in the woods. You're sweating. You're trying to catch your food. You're trying to build your tent. You're trying to build fires and all of those kind of things. And he's like, that was the dirtiest that I've ever been in my life. And needless to say, you know, when you get back from a trip like that, would you want to hug somebody like that? Would you want to be in the same car as somebody like that? Would you want to be in the same room as somebody like that? Probably not because they're really dirty. They really <laughs> they smell really bad. So you're going to say, look, before we hang out, you, you got to take a shower. Uh, I think there's a level. In, there, there's something within us that we know that dirtiness, uh, smelliness, it's relationally repugnant. We particularly know that in New York City because, you know, one of the things you learn if you've been in New York for a while when you're waiting for a subway train and every single subway car is packed and then you have this one car that is completely empty, uh, when you're new to New York, you, you go into that car, right? It's like, oh, this car is empty and you just walk in. But if you've been in New York for a while, you know there's a reason why that car is empty and it's because there's somebody in there and the car smells really bad and that's why the general population will avoid that car. The language of uncleanness, it it tells us that being unclean is relationally repugnant, which we see in in many places in, in our life. But it communicates also the fact that in our sin, we are relationally repugnant to God as well. In our sin, we are like the one who has gone camping for seven days without a shower. In our sin, we are like that person in the subway that smells and that everybody wants to avoid. And the only way where we wouldn't be repugnant anymore would be as if God were to make us clean. There's an interesting place in Zechariah 3 um, where the high priest Joshua, there's this vision, and Joshua is in filthy garments. 
And the Hebrew root word there for filthy, it actually shares the same word for excrement and vomit in Hebrew. So we're not just talking about dirty clothes from camping, but think about this. We're, we're talking about clothes that are smelly, that are disgusting, that are covered in vomit and covered in excrement. And you, if you understand the clothing of a priest gets a lot of attention, and a priest's clothing has to be really clean if they're going to enter into the presence of God, you have this vision of a high priest of Joshua, and his clothes are filthy. And in that Zechariah 3 passage, an angel comes and says, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And then Joshua is given a clean turban and clothed with new garments. In other words, God is making a promise there. He's setting a vision that he's going to be the one who makes us clean so that we wouldn't be uh, repugnant to him, so that we wouldn't be, uh, he wouldn't be repelled by us, but that we would actually be welcomed in into his presence. You know, our passage tells us the way that this kind of cleansing happens is through blood. It's through blood. Now, when we take these two things together, the blood and the idea of cleansing, you know where it leads? It leads straight to the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, what this passage foreshadows is this, that Jesus would be the ultimate sacrifice who would shed his own blood for our sins. And you see, that shedding of blood would give us forgiveness and our debts would be paid by his blood. But that shedding of blood also means that we would be made clean. You know, the book of Hebrews actually talks about it in great detail in uh, chapters 9 and 10. And the author is basically saying Jesus is the better and the ultimate sacrifice. Why? Because you know what was insufficient about this system of sacrifice in Leviticus that God inaugurated? It wasn't enough to deal entirely with sin once and for all. This process is something that had to be repeated year after year after year. And the blood of animals had to be sacrificed over and over and over again because ultimately it was insufficient to cover the debt of our sin and it was insufficient to make us clean. But you see, the reason why Jesus is a great sacrifice and the greater high priest is because his blood was not only enough to cleanse our flesh, but what it says in Hebrews is it was able to even cleanse our conscience. It wasn't just a surface-level cleaning, but it was a complete cleaning that Jesus Christ has made us clean inside and out. And that has a lot of implications in terms of what that should do to our lives. You know, I've used this illustration before, uh, actually preaching from Zechariah 3, but uh, I remember a long time ago I read this article that came out, and uh, there was this professional hairstylist, and he wanted to... <clears throat> he wanted to uh, help and serve the homeless population, and I think he was thinking, you know, what can I do to, to serve them? And he decided, I'm going to just go out on the streets, and I'm going to give them free haircuts. And you wouldn't think that styling somebody's hair or giving uh, somebody a haircut would make such a big difference, but it actually made a huge impact on the homeless population. Uh, he was, I think, interviewed, and one of the memories he said that stuck out was that after he cut one particular uh, homeless man's hair, uh, the man uh, was asking, hey, do you know anybody who's hiring? Uh, because he was conveying a, a new sense of confidence. 
you know, he had never thought about looking for a job before because he just felt dirty and repugnant. He would say, you know, who's going to hire somebody like me? And there's this huge lack of confidence in him. But after a simple haircut, there's a sense where he felt like he was a new person. That is a tiny taste of what I think the blood of Christ does for you and me. It cleanses us from our sin. Think about that. He takes away our filthy garments. He clothes us with new garments. He takes away our smelliness so that now we can be a pleasing aroma to God. You know, I do know uh, most of us probably struggle with a variety of different things. Uh, Some people struggle with sin related to anger, sin related to a broken relationship or sin related to greed or sin related to any kind of sexual sin. And you know, when I talk to people or when I hear people talk about the struggle, you know, a common response or reaction to that is like, uh, I, I just can't, I just can't pray. I don't feel like I can approach God or I can't go to church or something of that sort. And I think it reflects a sense of, you know, I feel dirty and I feel ashamed. In fact, I feel too dirty to even uh, come and approach God. God. And uh, if, if you've ever felt that, or perhaps you feel that right now, when you feel like that, you have to look at the cross and remember what it says. Because what the cross says is this, you may feel dirty in your sin at that particular moment, but Christ has made you clean. He has clothed you with garments of righteousness. He has given you uh, a new haircut of sorts so that now you actually have this new confidence to approach the one who no longer finds you repugnant. Friends, that's the gospel, and that's the beauty of the cross and the truth of the cross. You know, there's a... uh, I'll just end with this. You know, there's an exhortation that we find in the book of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 25. And after talking, right, spending two chapters talking about what the blood of Christ has done and what the sacrifice of Jesus Christ has done and Jesus as a high priest, the author gives an exhortation to this community, which now uh, I will allow this author to give to us here today. And he says this, Therefore, right, in view of the fact that Jesus is our sacrifice, in view of the fact that Jesus has made us clean, in view of the fact that Jesus is our great high priest, therefore, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's the exhortation, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Exhortation number two, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he, has prom- for he who promised is faithful. And third exhortation, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know that last verse, uh, we probably understand it as, you know, oh, we should meet together and fellowship and gather together as a Christian community. And it's usually disconnected from the context of what uh, the author of Hebrews is talking about in terms of what the blood of Christ accomplished. 
But the exhortation is clear. You see the cross and what the cross accomplished for us is true if we've received it, if we understand it, if we know it. Let us do these three things. Let us draw near to God with full confidence. There is no shame anymore because Christ has made us clean. Let us persevere. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us be confident in him and the truth of the gospel. And let us consider, let us think, let us wonder how we can stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, no matter how busy we are, no matter how inconvenient it is, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. Let us do these things because the blood of Christ has cleansed us and made us whole. And let us rejoice in that. Let's pray together.